Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, book of Ecclesiastes, um, and this is a third message of our series going through Solomon's uh, writings concerning his search for life and the meaning of life, the fulfillment of life, um, what's best in life, and uh, as I've said before, I, I really believe, um, and I think others Pastors, theologians have said um, similar things that this is, in a sense, Solomon's repentance. Um, there's, even though God used him and gave him wisdom, um, we still see indicators of uh, idolatry, clear indicators, clear writings of idolatry throughout his life and up until this point at the end of his life. Um, this book is probably the only uh, clear indicator of repentance. Um, and so we see that throughout this book as he searches for the meaning of life. So um, I'm going to read our passage uh, for this evening, chapter 2 and verses 12 to 26, and then we'll get into the lesson for this evening. So read along with me. So I turned to see wisdom, madness, and simple-minded folly. What will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that there is an advantage in wisdom over simple-minded folly, as light has an advantage over darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that the fate of one becomes the fate of all of them. Then I said in my heart, as is the fate of the fool, so will my fate be also. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said in my heart, this too is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise man along with the fool forever. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man dies with the fool. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Because everything is vanity and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a man of simple-minded folly. Yet he will have power over all the fruit of my labor. For which I have labored and for which I have acted wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I turned my heart to despair of all my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his portion to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in the striving of his heart with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his endeavor is painful and vexing. Even at night his heart does not lie down. This too is vanity." There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and have his soul see good in his labor. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment outside of him? For to a man who is good before him, he has given wisdom and knowledge and gladness. While to the sinner, he has given the endeavor of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to one who is good before God. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done through Solomon. 
for the writings that we have. His Proverbs, a couple Psalms that he wrote, the poem and the Song of Songs, and especially this book. We see these reflections upon life. And we see this despair over the brokenness and the fallenness and the emptiness of life in this sin-cursed world. But we also are pointed in the direction of the true meaning of life and true purpose. So Lord, as we look at this section of this book, help us to glean wisdom, help us to understand it, help us to apply apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's a place in California, um, I've been to several times, um, and uh, I didn't really take notice of it until I lived there for a while in Southern California, and a place where many tourists go along Highway 1, uh, along the coast, um, a place that is well-known, a um, place called Malibu. In Malibu, um, there's many beaches, there's um, many uh, expensive homes and uh, properties. There's uh, nice views of the ocean, there's places to surf, um, parks to enjoy. Um, but also in Malibu, you see, uh, you see people of the highest class in society, of great wealth and fortune, And you see people of the lowest class, both living almost side by side in the same place. Of course, there's uh, a bit of fences and security um, between the most wealthiest and the most poorest. But nonetheless, there they are. And in between, you see uh, tourists come and go and also enjoy the beaches. But I found it interesting that you see... People and you hear of people, uh, celebrities, people who own several homes. Um, you even see if you, you've known of the auction house Sotheby's of in- England, you see several of their signs uh, selling properties, and you see these multi-million dollar homes. And then you see along the side of the road, usually next to a public beach, uh, old vans, RVs, um, Volkswagen vans, uh, some vans and RVs that looked like they were built in the late 70s and early 80s and probably haven't moved since then. And you see people who are just living out of those vans and just enjoying their life and uh, doing whatever they need to do to get something to eat, um, get something to enjoy themselves, whether that would be some alcohol or drugs or, or just, um, you know, just surf all day or do whatever they, they want. The people call beach bums. And they live right next to the most wealthiest people in the world. And um, you wonder, who's really figured this life out? <laughs> because you think of all the stories of the celebrities and those people who have built vast fortunes and have um, a home right on the coast, and they enjoy the same view the beach bums do. 
who probably haven't um, dealt with the same amount of stress, um, perhaps may not have the same amount of mental anguish over uh, who likes them, who hates them, who worships them, uh, <laughs> all the things that the wealthiest celebrities have to deal with in spite of their wealth. And then there's the beach bum. And in this section of Solomon's uh, book, we almost see a similar contrast between the wise and the fool. Though even those two characters, as I was speaking of, you know, um, those residents of Malibu, whether it's the beach bum or the wealthy celebrity, um, it's not exactly the same because um, both could be considered fools, <laughs> um, depending on how you view them. But there is a sense of this large contrast. Um, and we see this here in this section as Solomon considers um, the meaning of life. As he reflects upon his investigation into the meaning and purpose of life, where can fulfillment in life be found? And we saw in, in the, the last two weeks as we looked at, began this study, um, we see Solomon's thesis for the book um, in verses uh, 1 to 11 of chapter 1 as he um, says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, that, that almost his conclusion right up front and he goes, does a broad overview of um, just his observations of the world and then um, in uh, verse 12 of chapter 1 down to verse 11 of chapter 2, he, we see his search into um, his search for meaning, for fulfillment in, in wisdom and learning and education and understanding and um, gaining knowledge. Then his search for in, uh, pleasure and possessions and uh, uh, joy and, and mirth and, and even in uh, wine and, and food and anything that um, uh, fallen mankind would, would search for meaning in. And yet, we come back to his conclusions, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And, and we see that throughout that, that phrase throughout uh, this book. is one of the main characteristics of this book, this sense of despair. Despair over a life lived under the sun in a fallen world where nothing seems to provide lasting fulfillment. It's exactly like what his tagline says. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity and a striving after wind. Uh, a, a striving after wind as if you know, you're trying to grab something that is ever elusive. You're trying to, to grab a hold of wind and you, you can't hold it and you, you can't even grab it. It's, it's ever elusive. It's always escaping you. And, and there's a sense in which Solomon does intend for us to feel the same sense of despair as he did. As he goes through the search, as he records his search, he records his reflections upon his search for meaning and fulfillment. Yet, there's also a sense in which his objective is to use that despair over the vanities of this life to drive us to the point where fulfillment and purpose in this life is found. I think that's his true objective, but he records his, his search, his process of getting there. 
And in this section of the book, after we see um, almost as if his initial search, his initial search for meaning in um, wisdom, pleasures, possessions, then he goes to his reflection. He reflects back upon his search in all of the areas in which man could possibly find it in this world. He turns then to reflect upon his search. And here we see his reflections in, in three areas of life. Uh, just like his search almost um, in the previous uh, section that we went over last week. And so first we see his reflections on wisdom and folly. Verses 12 to 17. He reflects upon wisdom and folly. And there are two categories of wisdom and folly which he reflects upon and, and then his response. So we see two categories of his reflections upon wisdom and folly. And then we see his response. It says in verse 12, So I turn to see wisdom, madness, and simple-minded folly. What will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that there is an advantage in wisdom over simple-minded folly, as light has an advantage over darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And so first we, we see the advantages of wisdom, madness, and simple-minded folly. He sees that there, there is an advantage in being wise. It, it, it's better to be wise than to be a fool. But at the same time, in verse 12, he says he, he looks to find the end of it all. What will the man do who will come after the king, talking about himself, except what has already been done? What's the end of the matter? What's the point of it all? And what will happen when I am gone? reflecting upon how he's been wise, how he's, he's done great things in Israel, and we can read about that in, in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, about everything he had done um, in Israel, building up, building up the, the cities of Israel, providing fortifications, um, improving trade and, and the economy, and um, so much so that, that the... The Bible says that, that the silver and gold were almost as stones in Israel in those days. Um, people came from all over to seek out his wisdom. But then here he says, what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? What's going to happen after I die? What's going to be the result of all my wisdom? And it's exactly what he feared would happen. You probably know the story, but turn with me to 1 Kings 12. And just as a reminder of exactly what had happened to everything he did. Everything he provided for. What, what he uh, did for, for Israel. And then we see, essentially, how the kingdom splits. The the The... the downfall of the kingdom of Israel. Solomon was, in a sense, because of his wisdom, um, in the beginning of his reign, it was the golden age of Israel, of the kingdom of Israel. But then we read in 1 Kings 12 and 6 to 10, when 
his son, King Rehoboam, it says, And King Rehoboam took counsel with the elders who had stood before his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to respond to this people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had counseled him and took counsel with the young men who grew up with him and stood before him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give that we may respond to this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us. Then the young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father make our, made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. Thus you shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. So now my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And you know what the result of that was. He, he did exactly what Solomon was fearing. <laughs> it's, it's almost a, a, a self-fulfilled prophecy uh, uh, that a fool would come after him. And he would, everything he did would be undone. Everything he did would be undone by his own son. What will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And yet he goes on and he says, And I saw that there is an advantage in wisdom over simple-minded folly as light has an advantage over darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness darkness there, there is an advantage in wisdom he sees there's an advantage in understanding the world around you there's an advantage in gaining knowledge because in that you understand the world or at least a little bit better than the fool you, you understand how things work you, you do have knowledge um, obtaining knowledge is, is something that you hold on to uh, many people will have said that um Knowledge is the one thing that no one can take from you. And, and there's truth to that. Um, the only thing that can take that from you is really um, age and mental decline. <laughs> but, you know, someone can take your riches, someone can take your freedom, but they can't really take your knowledge. And so there is an advantage in, in having wisdom and knowledge, but... The end is the same as the fool. As he goes on, he goes on to his, his second reflection on wisdom and folly is the fate of the wise and the fool. It's the same. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that the fate of one becomes the fate of all of them. They both die. They both die. And, and, and there's a, a sense in, in which... This reveals some sort of equality or neutrality that, as Solomon has, st has just stated, that they both die. They both go to, in a sense, uh, the same place, not necessarily. He, he knew, um, as, as many um, Old Testament Jews um, knew, that there would be a, a judgment. And uh, they didn't have the, the same amount of revelation as as we do, um, 
obviously, we have a New Testament, so we have a fuller revelation of heaven and hell. But they, they knew that, in a sense, uh, everybody dies, and then comes judgment. And Solomon sees this with the wise man or the fool. Yes, it's better to be wise than foolish, certainly. Most of the Proverbs he wrote, um, it, it counsels young men and women on the, the benefits of wisdom, how to gain wisdom, um, how to avoid foolishness and, and all the, the consequences of foolishness. And yet here, he comes to the conclusion that the wise and the fool uh, face the same fate. They have the same fate. It says in verse 15, Then I said in my heart, as is the fate of the fool, so will my fate be also. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said in my heart, this too is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise man along with the fool forever, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man dies with the fool. It's... It's almost frustrating. It's frustrating. And it, 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 you, you probably have seen this in your own life. Um, you, either in school or in work, um, you see a foolish person that somehow is um, either by chance, providence, um, maybe because they're just likable or they're funny. And they seem to advance in their career or in their social standing or in their possessions. And you're just like, why? That guy's an idiot. What? It's just, it's frustrating. It's vexing. Why have I been so wise? And it's even worse when we see it in, in media or in with the, the, the rich fools, um, usually pop stars. <laughs> um, and, and you clearly see their foolishness. And, and there is a sense, a, a pain of seeing them prosper. And, and Solomon reflects back on his life, on his wisdom, on all that he attained. And he comes to the end of it and he says, we all go to the same place. And there's a sense that sometimes you look at a fool and like they're they're happy in their foolishness. They're, they're enjoying life. What's it, what's the point? It's frustrating. And so that brings us to his response. His response towards wisdom and folly. Uh, the, the conclusion of his reflections, verse 17, so I hated life. I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is vanity and striving after wind. We, we see his response, his despair, I hated life. It, it's a phrase which is often heard by teenagers and young adults. I hate my life. I hate my life. But it's also true of many who have reflected upon the vanity of life, even adults. What's the point? Um, some people who have um, you know, struggled to attain some sort of prosperity or advancement in their career or standing in life, 
or even um, in terms of relationship, marriage and family, and, and just it seems like one thing after another, life just continues to beat them up. And what's the use? What's his use? I mean, this guy next door to me, he's an idiot, and he seems just like he's just enjoying life. Why, why am I trying to be so wise and, and do the right thing? This is a sense, this is the despair which Solomon comes to the end of himself. Because he's observed, he, God has given the wisdom which he prayed for. A, a wisdom greater than any man to lead these people. And, and he did use that wisdom for, um, to benefit Israel. Israel benefited greatly from his wisdom. He, he was wiser than any who came before him or after him. And so he observes life. He observes the order of creation. He observes uh, human life just to see the point of it. And he also observes fools. And he comes to the point and he says, you know, what's the end of it? We both die. In a sense, uh, Psalm 49 also reflects upon this uh, from, the, uh, from the sons of Korah. Talking about uh, uh, the wise and the fool. He sees that even wise men die. 49 verse 10 to 12. Psalm 49, verse 10 to 12, he sees that even wise men die, the fool and the senseless alike perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places from generation to generation. They have called their lands after their own names, but man in his honor will not endure. He is like the animals that perish. Also a sense of despair over life lived in a fallen world. Same despair we, we see in Psalm 39 by, by David, all throughout Ecclesiastes. Uh, seeing that the wise and the fool alike perish. We all go to the same place. And so we see his reflections on wisdom and folly. And then he turns to uh, reflecting back on work. His reflections on work, on labor. And goes to verse 18, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Solomon, he had just finished reflecting on his investigations into the benefits of wisdom and folly, and he concluded by saying, I hated life. I hated life. And, and now we look at his reflections on work, and he begins this section by saying, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor. I, I, or I, I hated the results of my work. We see the results of one's work here. Verse 18 and 19. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under his son, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. I, I, I can't take it with me. Can't take it with you. The, the benefits, uh, the, the wages earned, it, it doesn't go with you. And he goes on, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a man of simple-minded folly, yet he will have power over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored and for which I have acted wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. This is a, the results of one's work, is that it goes to someone else eventually, unless somehow you squander it all. Um, but even the effects of your work uh, 
you build something and someone will, else will enjoy it. And so Solomon, he reflects upon work, upon labor. Where will the results of all my hard work go? Which, you know, as we consider this, it isn't so much a problem for the person who is just working for a paycheck. You're just working to make ends meet and you don't, you don't really care too much about, you know, your, uh, what you're producing or what you're doing at work. You're just trying to get a paycheck just to make ends meet. And, and you know, that's not so much of a big deal unless, you know, you're really working for the money. But for those who their work is more than a paycheck, who are working for a position, to attain a position in the company or, or um, in your field, your career field, or um, to uh, just advance yourself, it can be frustrating. Same for someone who is uh, working to build a company or, or to an advance a cause, you know, whether they're working for some nonprofit or some humanitarian organization. This is a problem for someone who finds their identity in their job. Because what's going to happen when their job is gone? What's, what's going to happen if the company fails or that organization fails? What's going to happen if they lose their job or they, something happens to their health and they can't work anymore? And what's the results of all their labor? Yeah, I think about this uh, mainly for uh, retirees. I, I, I've seen this a lot in my own um, time in the military. It, it's, I, I saw it more in the National Guard because, uh, you know, in active duty military, if you spend your time there 20, 30 years, which um, there is a sense of purpose, a strong sense of purpose in uh military career or, or even for someone like law enforcement there's a strong sense of purpose but once it's done especially for active duty you you have to leave you can't stay around base but for someone who's say in the national guard i've, I've seen this several times they, someone retires and they tend to come back they tend to some of them tend to stick around and they come back once in a while and everybody else is like what are you Nice to see you, but uh, what, are you, what are you doing here? Um, <laughs> might not say that, but it, it's, it's kind of, you see this that people can't really let go. Sometimes you see it in a, a, a secular organization, a, a private company. Sometimes you, you, you might see it in other sectors of the government that someone retires and every once in a while they come back and they, hi. <laughs> it's like, and they just, their identity was wrapped up in that career, in that per and now what do I do? This is also a problem for, for business owners. Business owners, if, if um, who will they leave their business to? And, and especially those a uh, uh, family business, seen this um, several times, and hopefully, you know, I, I got a couple sons, and you know, I'm hoping this one he'll take over, and then it looks like he's going to take over, and he, he's worked at the family business, and then all of a sudden he decides, you know what, Dad, I don't, I don't really care. Or what's worse is you see he does take over, and then uh, 
you know, dad gets older and older and older and his health is declining and then the son just decides, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm going to sell the company. Just going to sell it. I don't really care for it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, and they're 30, 40, 50 years of work. Yeah, it, it, it provided for him, provided for a family. You, you see this in, in people, uh, the quote-unquote company man. Seen this uh, growing up in the Detroit area in the motor, motor industry, the, the automobile industry, and people who work for a certain um, car company for 20, 30, 40 years, and, and they couldn't buy any other car than what that, their company, and everything was wrapped up in this industry, in their, their job. So what happens when they leave? You know, I, I was given some good advice when I became a, a chaplain in the, my last couple of years in the military. As I became a chaplain, one of the, my chaplain supervisor, he told me, he said, you know, um, he's like, a, when I first became a chaplain, another older chaplain told me this. And he used the analogy of, uh, of Hosea and Gomer in the Bible. He said, he said you know, the army is a whore. He's like, it's just like Hosea and Gomer. You're going to be Hosea, army's Gomer. He's like, the army doesn't love you. But you are called to love the army. And you got to serve the soldiers. You're called to love the soldiers. And you serve them. You minister to them. But someday you're going to leave. And the army doesn't care. The army will continue on. So you're going to have to let it go. And the same is true for many companies, many organizations. You serve there. You do a good job. You do your job. You do a faithful job. You work unto the Lord. But when it's done, it's done. It's gone. You move on. And you know what? There's the same uh, thing is true for ministry. Same is true, true for ministry. And sometimes there's, there's men who go into ministry because they, they see that in the secular world, they see um, that what they're doing, whether they're making widgets or, or they're a lawyer or they're a businessman or whatever they do, and they leave that occupation to go into ministry because they, they, they feel that you know, ministry is, it has such a higher purpose, which is true, but at the same time, you're still not as special as you think you are. Because God has ministers all over the place. Churches come and go. Missionaries come and go. Preachers come and go. And someday your ministry will be over with. And you're going to have to leave it behind. You're going to have to move on. God has another person right behind you that will come up and replace you. You know, I, I remember um, growing up, this, this concept of work and, and just the vanity of work, of the results of your labor. And I remember growing up and being in Boy Scouts and, and just um, always saying, okay, okay, boys, we go to this campground. We have a wonderful time at this campground. Now we got to, and you probably heard this phrase before, we got to leave it better than we found it. 
So you line up, you clean up, you leave it better than you found it, and you feel great about it. I'm cleaning up the woods, cleaning up the campground, and it's a good thing to do. But after so many camping trips, you realize, how is it that I, we always leave it cleaner than we found it, but we always find it worse than we left it. And then I remember joining the military, and it was almost the same way when we go to a training area. They'd say it's the same. I heard this before. We're going to leave it cleaner than we found it. But then after going to so many training areas and cleaning so many barracks, then we always find it worse than we left it. But yet this is the saying throughout the whole military that we're supposed to clean it up and leave it better than we found it. But yet it's somehow it seems as if we're always following that dirty unit (laughs) that doesn't clean up after themselves. Because every other unit I've been in is supposed to clean up after themselves and leave it better than they found it. But I always find it worse than I left it. And this can be a lot of our, our workplaces, a lot of the things we do, whether it's, it's making widgets or selling widgets or teaching people or whatever we do, we, we, we can tend to try to find some sense of purpose in this. And there is purpose there, but it's not exactly as what we're looking for, as if we're going to change the world. Because someday we're going to leave our job, someone's going to take over, and they might not do the same job that we did. Someone's going to uh, come in behind us. And so Solomon, he reflects upon work, he reflects upon the results of one's work, and then he reflects upon the benefactors of one's work. Verse 20 and 21, Therefore I turned my heart to despair of all my labor for which I had labored under the sun, When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his portion to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. You work hard, you work wisely, you do your best, and then you leave the company, you leave the business, you leave the career, you leave your life's work behind, and you don't know who's going to come in behind you. Hopefully it's, someone, hopefully it's someone better than you, but sometimes it's someone far worse than you. It's some, sometimes it's someone that doesn't really care what you did. You're gone, and now they're there. And so they're going to do what they want to do. And so Solomon reflects upon the benefactors of one's work. And, you know, I have served in, as a hospice chaplain, and I have had the benefit of uh, ministering to people at the end of their lives. And uh, I've also, growing up, you know, known a couple people who have received inheritances. I've ministered to people who've had um, wondered about who's going to get their stuff and what to do with their stuff and their money. And I've also uh, known people who have received inheritances. And I don't remember ever meeting uh, someone who's received a large inheritance, but I've known some young people who've received a decent inheritance, which was quickly spent. 
And then there are those who um, have squandered, inherited a business or a property, and, and they either sold it off or it was squandered. This is what Solomon's getting at in verse 20 and 21. Um, who's going to receive all this that I've labored after? Who receives the fruit of one's labor? I mean, just thinking my own family, we, we come from central Ohio, and um, you know, there was one time we had 600 acres. We don't have 600 acres anymore. It's been a long time, probably a hundred or more years since we had a substantial amount of acreage. I don't even know the story of how it got sold off, but it got sold off, and now it's gone. <laughs> and now we're spread about, and we have different jobs and um, different vocations, and life goes on. Life goes on. Solomon, he reflects upon work and the results of one's work, the benefactors of one's work, and then the benefits of one's work. Verse 22 and 23, For what does a man get in all his labor and in the striving of his heart with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his endeavor is painful and vexing. Even at night his heart does not lie down. This too is vanity. In essence, he says, What does a man get in the end? At the end of it all. What does he get? Yes, we're to work, and work is not a result of the curse or of the fall. There was work in the garden. Work is a blessing. It's just the effects of fall on work is that work is harder. It's more frustrating. It's more painful. It's more vexing because we have to leave it to someone else. And so what's, what does a man get in the end? And so we see this, this pain and vexation in a work in a falling world. Solomon also alludes to the anxiety of work. He says that, that even at night his heart does not lie down. He's anxious, he's worried. We see the anxiety over earning, providing, collecting, building, saving, investing, and, and then guarding our resources. This is, I mean, most men can, can uh, identify with this. It's most of our life, and especially in the beginning of our life, as, as we're, we're trying to figure out our path in life, our career choices, uh, what we are to do with our lives and where we are to go. And, and most, more often than not, we, we think of how much money does this job make, which isn't exactly all wrong because we do need to make money. But it's all about, you know, what, what's the benefit? What do I get out of this? What, and, and what can I do with it? And, and, and uh, what do I gain from it? But Solomon, in reflecting upon this, he says, there's, there's, in a sense, no benefit at all. What does a man get in all his labor and in the striving of his heart with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his endeavor is painful and vexing. Even at night, his heart does not lie down. And this is especially true for those who are rich, those who have much. The more you have, the more you have to worry about, as many have said. 
this is true for Solomon as he not only has riches, but he had power and he had a position. He had a responsibility to the nation. And so certainly he understood pain and vexing of anxiety because of his riches. And he comes to the end of his life and says, what's the point? What's the point of it all? Why have I been so wise? What, what did I get out of it? This is vanity. Even the, even the Apostle Paul, he commands Timothy at the end of 1 Timothy, um, his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, Paul's given him instructions concerning those who are rich. And he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Command them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And yes, Paul has the benefit of more revelation than Solomon had, but Solomon will get to that same point too, which he sort of gets there in these next few verses, that it's not the things, it's not the stuff, so much. God gives us stuff, but we are to enjoy it and we are to use it for His glory. And that brings us to His final reflection upon His search for meaning and fulfillment in life, His reflections on life itself. Verse 24 to 26. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and have his soul see good in his labor. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment outside of him? For to a man who is good before him, he has given wisdom and knowledge and gladness. While to the sinner, he has given the endeavor of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good before God. This too is vanity and striving after wind. He asks in his reflection upon his reflections on life, he asks a few questions. First, uh, what is best in life? What is best in life? And many people, they spend their whole lives seeking for what is best in life. And the answer to that question really depends upon your perspective on life, which I think this is where Solomon is pushing us. What's our perspective on life? Because if we have the right perspective, we'll, then we'll come to the right conclusions and the right answers to what is best in life. However, if you have the wrong perspective on life, then no answer will ever su suffice because you'll continue to search for fulfillment and meeting in areas which don't provide it. You know, we, we've, you've probably heard that, that um, question before. What, what's the best thing in life? What is best in life? Uh, you know, I think of a, a silly uh, 80s movie that I grew up watching and hearing that phrase, and um, some of you know what I'm alluding to. I won't quote it, but uh, what is best in life? And the actor gives a, a foolish answer. Um, but you've heard people say that. What is best in life? Well, what is it all about? What's the meaning of life? 
And to know what is best in life, we need to know where is the best life found. And so Solomon gets to that. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. It says, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and have his soul see good in his labor. This is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment outside of him? And that's the answer which Solomon is pointing us to throughout this book. And there's a couple um, instances, a couple passages throughout this book in which he will allude to that and he will elaborate on that. And he finally um, gets to the end in, in chapter 12 in which he says, For the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. The best life is found in God. In God. Because everything comes from God and everything has been created for God and, and everything is to be used for the glory of God. Life is to be lived for the glory of God. As uh, what has been quoted often, uh, the, the Westminster Confession of um, Westminster Confession, it says, uh, what is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and glorify him forever. To enjoy God and glorify him forever. If we are created for God, we find enjoyment in God and in the things that he has given us. We labor for God, we work for God, we, um, we order our lives around God, around his word. And then Solomon gets to the last question in his reflections on life. First, what is best in life? Where is the best life found? And who has the best life? Verse 26, For to a man who is good before him, he has given wisdom and knowledge and gladness. While to the sinner he has given the endeavor of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to one who is good before God. And then he ends, This too is a vanity and striving after wind. Almost as if um, he's saying, uh, as he said before, concerning the fate of the wise and the fool, that we still end, we still have the same end, but the one who is good before him lives a God-honoring life. He lives a God-honoring life. And this is the one who has the best life, who understands, in a sense, the, the purpose of his existence. The purpose of life is to live for the glory of God, to, uh, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to enjoy the good things he has given you, but also to enjoy the bad things, to uh, embrace God's sovereignty, to embrace his providence, to embrace um, everything that he is and everything that he has revealed himself to be to embrace your position in life as a creation, as a created being that is subject to and accountable before God. And when you understand that, then you understand how to live and, and how to work and, and how to pursue the things of this life. Not for yourself, not to gain, not to store up goods, not to build bigger and bigger barns, but to live for God. And it's, 
when you understand that, it's, it's not so much what you do or what you have done that is important in God's eyes, but how you have done it and how you do it. What you do is important, but it's much more important how you do it and whether or not it's done unto the Lord. Whether or not it's done with a good attitude, whether or not it's done with faith and hope in God or faith and hope in yourself. Faith and hope in your accomplishments, faith and hope in your circumstances, or faith and hope in your own legacy. All that we do is to be done to the glory of God, and our faith and hope is to be in God and all the circumstances that He has ordained for ourselves and our lives. Solomon alludes to this in Ecclesiastes 9.10, in which he says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no working or explaining or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. In a sense, talking about the grave, he says, you know, while you're here, work with all your might. But we see this uh, expanded upon and better explained by Paul in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, or even... 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. The famous missionary Jim Elliott said, um, wherever you are, be all there. Because, and that, that it, it's funny how many, um, there's many unbelievers who have taken that as a mantra for life and they don't understand the full meaning of it. But the meaning of it is that God has ordained your life he is uh, sovereign. He is uh, providential in his guidance, in his wisdom, in directing you and guiding you. And so wherever you are, you embrace the fact that God has brought you there. God has placed you in these set of circumstances. And you are to embrace that and live, work, and have your being unto the glory of God, and you are to be all there. To be all there. This is the purpose of life lived in a fallen world, and I think as Solomon has shown us and will continue to show us, as he observes the world around him and all the things that people do, all the motives behind their actions, all the things that they chase after, that apart from God... It is vanity of vanities, and it's striving after the wind. But for those who know God, who trust in God, who hope in God, who worship God, we can do the same activities unto the glory of God and actually find meaning and purpose in those things and not place our full hope and joy and peace and fulfillment in those things or in those activities, but in enjoying those things and carrying out those activities to the glory of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wisdom. We thank you for being confronted. Being confronted in our false motives for which we live our lives, our selfish motives of chasing after the same things which many unbelievers chase after of trusting in the same things, of hoping in the same things. Lord, you've called us out of the world to, to be separate and to live differently. 
Yet, we, in a sense, we still live in this world. We still live and move and have our being in this world. But we are to live differently. We are to live for you. So help us to do that and help us to find our enjoyment, our satisfaction, and our fulfillment in you. So that wherever you take us, whatever you give us, whatever you take from us, whatever you may do with us, we will find our hope, our joy, our fulfillment in you and in you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.